0: Well, here in Micah chapter 7, we've got what I would call an appendix to the prophecy of Micah. First six chapters, he's there really going quite tough at uh, at Judah, that they've sinned and that they really need to repent and reform themselves. And notice incidentally in chapter 1 verse 1 that he's making this prophecy at the time of Hezekiah who was a righteous king, and apparently everything was all resolved, and, and uh, great reforms, etc. But quite clearly, from this prophecy, the people's heart was very far from God. And so Micah's appealing for their repentance, and then, really, the thing finishes at the end of chapter 16. And he, he then adds this chapter 7, which is very personal, and it's about him. And he seems to be saying, look guys, I'm no better than you. I'm a serious sinner and although I'm a prophet I am absolutely as sinful as you but I believe in justification by grace and I therefore am right with God and this really is the, the way to preach this is the way to relate to people to admit our own fallibility and our own weakness this is the way to go it, it seems to me that we are not standing there saying look I'm, I've got it all sorted Um, but rather I am with you, you my audience, whether it's one person or a whole crowd of people I am with you, I'm no better than you and I also am in a serious position before God so he starts off verse 7, woe is me, for I, as when uh, they have gathered the summer fruits as the grape gleaning of the vintage and there's no cluster to eat my soul desire the first ripe fruit, so he's saying look I feel like a guy who's worked in the harvest And then at the end of the harvest, there's still nothing to eat. But he's just said that to Israel. Chapter 6, verse 14, You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And especially verse 15, You shall sow, but shall not reap. You shall tread the olives, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil. And sweet wine, but you shall not drink wine. And then he goes on to say, And that's me. Verse 1 of chapter 7. He's connecting right back with what he's just been saying at the end of chapter 6 to Israel. So, although he's very tough with with the people of Judah, uh, he's really saying that he is essentially no no better. And he goes on to talk about how society within Judah has collapsed. The good man is perished out of the earth. I mean, collapsed in spiritual terms, that there's no one really who is uh, upright among men, he says, verse 2. And then he... He says in verse 4 that the day of your watchman is coming. Well, who were the watchmen? The watchmen were the prophets, and he was a prophet. And he's saying, look, what I prophesied is going to come upon you. But in this appendix, he's saying, I am no better than you. And verse 9, I suppose, is, or verse 8 and 9, is what I'm getting at. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall. I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. So he seems to have the idea that he has fallen. And who is his enemy? Well, I suggest verse 5 gives an idea. You can't trust in a friend, in your guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lies in your bosom. Well, I would think that that is talking about his wife or his partner. Uh, And the allusion seems to be back to Delilah, who betrayed Samson, as if he's feeling that he's Samson. Let's go on in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him. And so he recognizes that he has sinned, and he says, verse 10, then she that is my enemy, she that is my enemy, So why I suggest it's his wife or his partner, who lies in his bosom, she that is mine enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her, which said unto me, where is Yahweh your God? My eyes shall behold her, and she shall be trodden down as the mire of the streets, so he is convicted that he has sinned and his woman who lies in his bosom has mocked him because of his faith in Yahweh now this is where I see the allusion back to Delilah and him seeing himself as Samson maybe he was sexually out of control I don't know and this is not the first time in Micah that he alludes to that if you go back to chapter 6 verses 6 and 7 He he says, with what shall I, this is Micah personally, with what shall I come before the Lord? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? No. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? No. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So he feels that he has committed the sin of his soul, his transgression. And that it's only a firstborn, but not my firstborn, who shall redeem me from that. It's no good offering animal sacrifices. Now, he has come very close to the spirit of Christ here. It is someone's firstborn, but not mine, who shall redeem me from this. And there's no good offering sacrifice. Now, who else says there's no good offering sacrifice? I I have no sacrifice to offer. All I can do is throw myself upon your grace. I mean, this is David, isn't it, after the sin with Bathsheba. And I again would see, as I see with the allusion to Delilah and Samson, I, I detect here an allusion back to David. And so I think you could put together a case that this is a sexual sin that he's committed, and he feels that it, it can't be uh, dealt with by, by sacrifice, but only by... The offering of a firstborn, but not my firstborn. Now he talks there in chapter 6 verse 7 about his transgression and his sin. And yet in chapter 3 verse 8, he says, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, of judgment and of might, to declare unto Jacob his transgression, unto Israel his sin. So his job in the prophecy was to declare to the people of Israel their transgression and their sin and in chapter 1 verse 5 he opens the prophecy by saying for the transgression of Jacob is all this and for the sins of the house of Israel what is the transgression of Jacob what are the high places of Judah etc so then he's saying look I've been on about your sin and your transgression and it has been my duty to declare that to you but look here I also have my transgression and my sin which elicits or or calls for my condemnation So, he's really saying, I am not separated from you, in the sense that I am not better than you. And yet, he says in verse 9 something that is quite stunning. Let's read it again, chapter 7 now, verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he plead my cause, and execute judgment or justice for me he will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. This is really, when you think about it, this is the spirit of Paul to the Romans. He's saying that we come before the just judgment of God, and we should be condemned, and he says, I am condemned, but he, my judge, will plead my cause, and this is legal language, and execute justice for me, or judgment. Now, In what sense then can it be that we who are sinners can on a just basis be counted righteous so that, as he says, I shall be brought forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. And that that may be another way of saying I shall look at him face to face. How can that be? Because if God simply scribbles our sin and says, OK, yeah, well, I didn't see it, son. You know, yeah, you're good, really. uh, This is not just. And the whole idea of sin being a real and felt offence against God seems to me somewhat lacking in meaning. If in the end, well, God can just say, oh, yeah, okay, well, yeah, forget it. There's got to be a basis. And, of course, it's that basis which Paul specifically explains to us in Romans, that we come before the the judgment of God and we are condemned, but... Who is our judge and who is pleading our case, our advocate, it's God or Jesus. And because we are in Christ, by baptism into Christ, therefore we are counted as righteous. And on the just basis, we can be seen as without sin and therefore we can behold God's face. And I suggest that Micah reflected upon the nature of sin to such an extent that he came to understand the spirit, shall I say, the spirit of Christ and the spirit of what Paul was talking about in Romans. And as I said in chapter 6 verse 7 where he says, look, there's no sacrifice that's any good and I can't even offer my firstborn for my transgression or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. The implication is it's got to be someone else's, and that someone else is God's. In- interestingly, the fruit of my body, the other time this, uh, this occurs, is in the promise to David, that of the fruit of David's body, God would set Jesus uh, upon the throne of David. So that's another hint that he's, he's got in mind, consciously or unconsciously, the future work of, of the Messiah. And he he says, because of this, at the end of verse 9, He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness, or look at his face. Now, without this process of justification by faith and by grace, we would be totally unable to do this. How can we ever contemplate the idea of looking at the face of God? It's possible if we, and only if, we are justified in Christ. And so, can you lift up your eyes to heaven and pray? On one hand, no, because we are as the sinner who says, I can't do that, and beats upon his breast and asks for mercy. But, of course, what happened after that? He goes down from the temple, the Lord Jesus says, justified, counted right. And so when he got home, could he lift up his eyes to heaven? I think very nervously he could. And that person is us. And I say nervously because not out of fear of God, but just with that very deep sense that I should not be in this place that I'm at, and I have been counted right by grace. Now this is also relevant for us at the breaking of bread, because here we are remembering what he did for us. We're remembering again the wonderful story of Romans Uh, when he explains the atonement there in the first six chapters that we are counted right and that means that there is now no longer in that sense the barrier between us and God because we are in Christ and so that has got to be the continually uh, throbbing self-awareness that we have that I am in Christ and that he looks at me as if I am Jesus his beloved son and this then is the way to be able to have relationship with God and to realistically look forward to the coming of Jesus and being able as we're told to to see God's face finally now his wife or partner was mocking him because of this but he says that in the end she shall be condemned Uh, verse 10 mine eyes shall behold her and I think he means at that day and she should be trodden down as the mire of the streets this is the language of condemnation to tread underfoot is a biblical idiom for condemnation and incidentally I think that implies that at the day of judgment there will be a public element to it that we will see the righteous go into the kingdom of God Jesus says to the Jews you will see them go in and you yourselves cast out that we will actually see the condemnation of the wicked, that the whole thing in that sense will be public, and secrets will be revealed. And just bear that in mind, because that affects really how we live now, and all hypocrisy, acting one way, uh, but secretly doing something else, it then becomes so stupid, when ultimately lives will be laid bare, before the Lord and not only before the Lord but before everybody else in that day now he concludes the whole prophecy in 18 and 19 who is a God like unto you that pardons iniquity passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage he retains not his anger forever because he delights in mercy and you know, it's really his final appeal to throw yourself upon the mercy of God And incidentally we read about the anger of God but his anger is for the moment. The idea that God is an angry God sitting up there getting mad with us, I can only say that that is an impression one we get from a cursory, not serious reading of the Bible. A sustained daily reflection upon God's word, day by day, leads you to the very clear understanding that he delights in mercy and he is a God of love. But because of the, the huge level of that love, his anger is of course provoked by the abuse of that love. Then verse 19, he will turn again, he will have compassion upon us, he will subdue our iniquities, that's Micah included, and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now, why the our iniquities and their sins? I think that this maybe is his final personal reflection. Because I don't think this is addressed to anyone, apart from, it's like a soliloquy, it's a man talking to his God. And he feels very much connected, therefore, with Israel, Uh, or judah and with their sin and he sees that his forgiveness his personal forgiveness is part and parcel of theirs and so salvation is in a body in micah's time it was in the body of israel in our time it is in the body of christ for those that have been baptized into the lord jesus christ And because of that, it's not simply that we're all a bunch of individuals that are sort of facing off against God with Jesus and the Bible uh, between us kind of thing, and it's up to us sort of thing. The thing is, Jesus died and resurrected, his body rose from from the grave, and his body was immortalized, and our salvation is on the basis of having a part in that body of Christ. And of course, as you know, the body of Christ does not only refer to him personally, it refers to the whole community that are in him. And so the fact that salvation is in the body of Christ means that practically we should perceive ourselves as members of that body and not ever seeking to exclude anybody from it. We cannot do that. You can never exclude anyone from the body of christ all you can do is to accept by grace and with thankfulness that you are part of it and to realize that the guy next to you is in exactly that same position as you and you know he would have been sorely tempted i think to separate himself from israel from the body a bit like elijah did and that was elijah's sin in my opinion and elijah's big mistake but he doesn't. And I love this 7th chapter because it just shows how he really is connected uh, with a sinful people, a sinful mass, uh, as it were, and, and does not see himself as better than them or higher than them. The difference was, of course, that he perceived himself very much as justified by faith through grace. And he says that, you know, i sinned against him, I just love that verse 9, um, but he's going to plead my cause. My judge is my advocate, my counsel for the defence. It's the same person, and you know that is exactly the the idea of of, of Paul in Romans. And he he concludes then um, that you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now this is of course the the Egyptians being cast into the depths of the sea. This is right out of the song of uh, Miriam and, and, and Moses when. Uh, the uh, the water has come back and the Egyptians are drowned and cast into into the depths of the sea and what does that represent in our context we are baptized into Christ as they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea so this is the significance of baptism that all our sin really was destroyed there that our sin is to be seen as the Egyptians not me and this again is Paul's point about identity we are sinners, we are in that sense Egyptians, but who do you identify yourself as? we identify ourselves with the Israel who crossed the Red Sea and that the sin that we have that so easily besets us is in fact dead in reality from God's perspective and he concludes verse 20 you will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham now what was the blessing promised to Abraham and Jacob it was blessing and what is the blessing well Acts 3 Peter defines that blessing and Paul does elsewhere in the New Testament but uh, Peter defines it clearest of all I think at the end of uh, Acts 3 God sent Jesus to bless us in turning away each one of us from our iniquities And he says, God made a covenant, 3 verse 25 of Acts, uh, with our fathers saying unto Abraham and in your seed, that's Jesus, will all the nations of the earth be blessed? And that blessing is that we have been turned away from our iniquities. So then the blessing, the mercy and the truth that Micah talks about is ultimately forgiveness and salvation. And so as he's had so much to say about sin and in chapter 7 about his personal sin, he feels that that is dealt with by the promises of God to Abraham by the mercy and truth and it's the truth bit that maybe we will conclude with, the truth is the final truth the only truth that is actually worth anything, the final truth is that our sins have been cast into the depths of the sea and that we shall be brought forth verse 9 again um, Maybe that's a reference to resurrection. It's being brought forth anyway to the light, being brought forth before the the very throne of God, and I shall behold his righteousness.